Hello and welcome to Top Tier, episode 8. I'm your host, Daniel Pavlushkov, and today's guest is John Cutler, Head of Product Education at Amplitude. We rely on product analytics a lot, and Amplitude platform helps us every day. So quite naturally, I got to know John through that. He has a perspective that spans many, many roles and domains, ranging from UX researcher at Appfolio to a product manager at Zendex and Pando.io, then a startup founder, and finally a product team coach and a speaker at several conferences and product camps. His blog posts regularly receive a thousand claps on Medium, so I knew I had to invite him as a guest. Immediately, we settled on the topic of passion for both of us, which is product culture and how to foster it. In this episode, we will talk about why companies struggle in similar ways, but their success path is always different, how to map a product culture once you join a company, and if you should copy it from Netflix or Amazon, and how I, as a non-founder, can influence the culture. John is like a goldmine of knowledge, so let's not waste any more time and switch to the episode. Hi John, super happy to have you. Welcome to the show. To kick us off a little bit, could you please tell about your journey so far and maybe a couple of challenges that you have faced? Sure. So I actually got a, a fairly late start in uh, product management. In my 20s, I was heavily involved in music. So I played in bands and we did a lot of touring around. Um, I also had a business where I made a, a video game. So maybe maybe that was my start in product management. I had a, a video game uh, where you were the bartender in a bar and you had to learn how to mix drinks. <laughs> uh, and it was called Last Call, which is not a good name for a game because, you know, that was the only time we didn't release a sequel to the game. Um, but actually, it's, it's interesting, even maybe even until five years ago, I would still get there was crazy people around the world who would be playing the game and they would say, oh, you know, I've got this window, old Windows machine that we keep in the back of the bar to teach new bartenders how to, <laughs> how to mix drinks. So it became like a cult hit, you know, in a certain things. So I did that in my 20s. And then, you know, I kind of drifted into this uh, through a number of roles. You know, a friend would bring me in and say, well, we kind of got this problem. You need to be able to sort of talk to the business and then talk to technical people. <laughs> And so I slipped into product management, I guess. Um, and then, you know, ever since, you know, this started working at some different companies, Pendo, it's like an analytics, you know, in-app messaging company, uh, Zendesk, Appfolio, which is property management, so vertical B2B SaaS. Zendesk, which is, I guess, a horizontal SaaS play, you know, it's customer support across many different verticals. And now I work in Amplitude. And Amplitude, I'm somehow into this product analytics stuff because I'm back <laughs> in product analytics. Um, but at Amplitude, my role is really like an external coach in some sense. So, you know, if you can think about education, you know, there's how to use the product. But as we know, with a lot of stuff with product, how to use tools is just one part of the big picture. Um, so I focus on helping our customers and prospects think about how they approach product. But the coolest part for me is that it means that I spend you know time with teams from all around the world so i've never as a product nerd it's the coolest job ever because you get to talk to product teams everywhere you know all the my heroes and the different companies some are customers and some are you know just come to us or prospects so that's good i'd say that a current challenge um in my role and actually you know current challenge with amplitude in general at the moment is just the the classic cliche scale it's just you know you 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 open up your email to welcome new people to Amplitude and it's like, 
we just hired 30 people in the last two weeks. You know, who are they? What do they do? And I'd say the interesting part from a product management standpoint is my observation is that companies scale, you actually get let fewer and fewer and fewer people in the company who can keep the whole company in their head. And it's a fascinating thing. It's not even relative. It's not like when you go from two to 400, you go from 20 people to 35 people. It's like when you go to two to 400, you go, you go 20 to 19 <laughs> because yeah. you're increasing the complexity of the company at the same time. Um, so in my role, especially since I sort of think about the whole company and the product and what we do, that's been a personal challenge is just keeping the company and the product in my head. Um, all, all the complexity at once. And so I'd say it's a classic product challenge, um, but um, yeah, scale is hard, basically. Yeah, and I can totally relate about that uh, you get to meet a lot of different product people because that's what I'm doing with the podcast. Every time I take an interview, I get to know another company, another process, and it's just super exciting to meet people from all over the world. And as you've been working as a head of uh, product education, that's not a very popular title to have. And I think many companies that work in that space and provide a SaaS or something is just an indication to me that you took onboarding and user education to the like to the next level, basically, because you want them to be successful with your tool. And knowing that um, Amplitude is such a like fundamental tool, you need to have a product analytics. We rely on it all the time and we need to use the most out of it. And since you've been talking to so many different teams, have you noticed any particular similarities uh, across those different teams and organizations and approaches that they have? Yeah, it's interesting. So one thing I would add, I, I think that in SaaS, you know, you might see with Miro or you see with a bunch of companies, it's pretty common to think about, you know, product education as in how to use the product. You know, so you see classes and you see the academy and you see that kind of stuff. I'd say that the different approach we're using at Amplitude is also really trying to get ahead of this, um, what you might call like category or industry education, right? Which is these surrounding skills um, that can help the teams get their things. So I think that that's, you know, that's kind of interesting. When it comes to the teams we speak to, I think my friend Josh Arnold had this very funny quote where he said, you know, there's in, in the book, you know, Anna Karenina, they say, I think it's like all happy families are the same and all dysfunctional families are different. And he flipped it around and he calls it the reverse Anna Karenina principle, which is there's a lot of anti-patterns you see across all sorts of companies, you know, things like high work in progress or no product strategy or, you know, um, you know, premature scaling, or you could list these things. But what's really fascinating to me is that when you look at the companies that are doing really well, they're often very different culturally, you know? So it's one of those funny things that when you look on Twitter or whatever, and you see someone says like, um, you know, leadership, you need to create a clear message. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, no, you know, no, no blank, you know, no shit, <laughs> right? But and then when you point out the anti-patterns, you know, like, oh, my God, you know, my boss, whatever. You're like, well, that's common between the companies, you know, because all the dysfunctional, fam <laughs> dysfunctional families are the same in product. What I find fascinating is how different the successful companies are. And what I mean by that is, yeah, you know, of course, they have some similarities like, you know, they have great communication or they have an articulated strategy or they think about 
um, measurement, they think about impact. There's some high level teams the same, but culturally they can be extremely different. You know, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, um, you know, the United States is actually very individualistic in how we approach work. And there's this idea of meritocracy. Now, whether that exists or not, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of debate about whether there's meritocracy in these things. So what you often see in the Bay Area is actually like, um, you know, the uh, companies are doing really well, but it's very much about individuals and individual projects and, you know, very, very clear lines of responsibility, who does X, who does Y, you know, doing these things. And what I think is really, really interesting is that maybe if you go to Northern Europe or you go to another place, it's a little bit more collectivist. You know, the, the decisions, it's a little less individualistic. And so when I think about the patterns, you know, what makes these companies different is they all figure out how to have clear communication. How they communicate can be so different. You know, one company is a documentation culture. Everything is, you know, write the one pager, do the pre-read, do the silent read, you know, then we'll, we'll debate the ideas. And another company in another place in the world is much more about one-to-one -one communication or group communication. So I think that, you know, to say, if I was to point to the things that they all do well, they communicate extremely well, you know, they think about feedback loops and they try to tighten those. They really focus on the product strategy as a guiding light for what they're doing. And they really, really, you know, engage everyone from engineers to designers, et cetera, in the mission. How they can do that is often very different. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that helps, but it's one of the cool things about my job is to say like, oh, they're all great communicators, but they all do it in different ways. <laughs> yeah, and I think it boils down to what kind of people you hire and what kind of people are attracted to your company and your product, because even like, being super honest, uh, good communication, you can be very secretive about your communication and right. still build a great company. And you don't need to go far for an example because Apple is one exactly. where everything <laughs> is under super huge secret that no one shares with anyone and you only hear about it during the release time. Or you can have be super transparent and you have Buffer or some other company that is ultra transparent and it also works really well for them. And I think really it does boil down to the cultural norms that you have. And what is also cool, what you said at the very beginning, that when you scale the company and you go from 20 to 50 or from 50 to 100, you cannot just use the same process because uh, you're probably going to be talking less one-on-one -on -one and you're going to be probably taking decisions in in the groups of different people or maybe they're going to be async and right. for this to work i think it really also depends a lot of how or what kind of culture you create in the company because instead yeah. of an individual making a call you, there should be a culture that drives a decision Right. And I was wondering what is from your experience uh, an example or manifestations of how this culture can be driving product decisions or could be considered even a product culture by itself. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny you mentioned the Apple example, right? So, um, you know, so, so this mix of like high secrecy, but high empowerment at the same time, you know, so, so there's this you know, this idea that Steve Jobs, you know, was this tyrant and, and you know, he, he was in some ways to do these things. But also he gave there, there was a culture in Apple of sort of layers of this type of feedback, you know, and so there's a, a high culture of feedback within a tight boundary. So you could move quickly, 
but get really honest and direct feedback within your boundary because you mentioned that sort of secrecy element you know between particular things so that's an example of how in that particular you know everyone's like you know you read books about apple and it's true that by the time you presented to steve jobs you had also presented to other people who had a similar style of giving feedback and direct kind of feedback to do those things so you know it was it was hard it was very difficult but it, that's how the culture repeated itself at many different layers and this is one of the signs you see of these great product cultures is they're very fractal meaning like how the teams operate is almost like a fractal image of how the layers around it operate to do these things because imagine you have an organization that has you know the founders are all in each other's face, you know, and they're all challenging each other and doing things. And then, but on the team level, everyone tries to be totally, you know, they, they don't threaten anyone. You know, you can't have a productive conversation. The, the organization is going to be very imbalanced to do that. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I'm pointing that out and I mentioned the Apple example because so one example of this is the Apple example and one, one I think um, core principle that that demonstrates is the fractal nature you know, so you're, you're, you can move up and down the organization and sort of operate in similar types of collaboration styles uh, to do that. Now, what's fascinating is you take something like, I mean, my friends at Google, for example, they're like, look, it's an engineering run culture. And if you're a product manager, your goal, you have to keep in mind that the engineers want to be working on something cool mm -hmm. <laughs> too, you know, and you always have to keep that in your mind that they're going to do what they want to do. And you have to sort of sell them on it. You know, you have to, you have to engage them in that particular thing because, and, you know, so I think that that's kind of fascinating, right? Because so take Apple, you know, we described that kind of, um, kind of fractal culture to be able to do that. So in Google, for example, it's very much about you know engineering culture first and then thinking what that's going to enable from a product angle and then also really um thinking about the, the sort of like career quality of the engineers that you're working yeah. with and then you could argue well oh my god well why don't you just think about the customers and why do you don't do whatever and both of those companies have a sort of version of being customer centric <laughs> right, to do it. So I'll stop. And I, I don't know if that's the direction you're looking for, but those are two, you know, different types of cultures and how they manifest in those things. So I think it's mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. And I think what you also mentioned that a company can have different cultures depends on the layer also, also holds true because you have a team culture, you have a department culture, you have company culture, and they're oh, all exactly. slightly different. So yeah. let's imagine that I work in a, middle-sized company, a startup that is very ambitious and we are, I don't know, 50 people or so. And probably this is a time to introduce a culture or at least the foundation of the culture. Yeah. And as you said, I know that there is Google and then there is Apple and Amazon <laughs> and Netflix and all those huge and wonderful companies and they already have their own culture. So what would be your recommendation? Should I just I know, copy the culture and artifacts or what, what's my way to introduce culture to my company? Well, so this is my perspective on this, but I think culture is what you do and, and the, where you're consistent. So culture is like the consistent actions that you take that seem guided by something. So I'll give you an example. 
there's a company here in Santa Barbara where the founders were engineers, but they had a string of engineering-led companies that actually failed. Well, failed, you could say, I mean, there were exits for people, but they weren't like a stratospheric success. Now, interestingly for these, these founders, so when they started the company that I'm talking about, they knew they wanted to have a very product-driven approach. They wanted to combine this kind of engineering craft with this product approach that they saw. So when they started the company, they would go and live with customers. You know, they were obsessed with Steve Blank and customer development. They were they didn't want to repeat the mistakes they made in the past. It, they The culture they set in the beginning is you don't just build because you just want to build. Like the customer comes first all the time and product comes first. And what's interesting is that that's what they were stubborn about. So early on, you know, they would bring in consultants maybe to help them with XP and craft and because they knew that engineering craft was important and necessary to be customer, you know, product led. And they were just obsessed with being product led. The reason why I mention that if you're talking about a 50 person startup or whatever is that culture is really, really, really what you're openly stubborn about and repeated you know, what you do, even Netflix, you know, the Netflix culture manifesto came at a time when they were kind of worried a little bit and they, they really wanted to capture the essence of the actions of what the company was about or what they were doing, right? And so it's, it's very hard to force culture that way, just as it's very hard to create a new habit yourself. Like, oh, I want to be a chef, so I'm going to start making bread over the pandemic. Six months later, no one's making bread. Right? So, okay, you weren't a chef, you weren't a baker, you thought you were a baker during the pandemic. So I would say that when you're at the 50 person level, you need to look very deeply within yourself to find out what you are stubborn about. Like, what do you believe? What, what are you willing to say over and over and over for the next 15 years, even when it's not convenient, even when, you know, the, the quarter didn't look good, <laughs> you know, even when those things didn't work out, and then what actions are you taking to start that process to do it? And the reason you know I say that is you can trace the cultures for most of these big companies back to the stubbornness of early people. And in some cases, when the culture falls apart for a company, you can trace it back to competing cultural views. You know, the founding team had one group that you know just wanted to get out quickly and had another group that wanted to create X and they fought until the end and then the company never achieved its true mm. thing. So I'd say early on is your opportunity to look really deeply inside you, think about what you're stubborn about, really, really stubborn about, and then think about if it's coherent, you know, if your founding team is really believes those things and then how are you gonna show that over and over and over and over and over again for the next 15 years? <laughs> Okay, but what to do if I'm not the founding team and I just joined the startup as an employee and I see that there is no culture and I know that I read a blog post or something that culture is important. I listen to you on a podcast yeah. and I say, yeah, it's time to introduce the culture. How do I do that? I'm just a, a product manager or a person who doesn't have a lot of influence or maybe has some, but it's not on the founding level. It's not on C team. Yeah, so the thing that, here's number one, the culture is there. You just might not like it. So 
cult if culture is what we do, so the first thing you should do if you're at a product company, you've gotten a job, they sold you on the job, you get in and you're like, something's wrong here. I don't know what this company is about. First thing to do is shut up and observe <laughs> the company for 30 or 60 or 90 days, right? And the culture is what people are doing. And I think I, the reason why I say that is because sometimes you just don't like it. You know, sometimes you start a company and you're kind of like, it seems like we don't really have any strong opinions about something, but we really care about closing deals or whatever. <laughs> you know, maybe that's the culture. Maybe mm -hmm. originally it's about doing that. So the first thing is observe very, very carefully because you're not going to shift the company by brute force. You're not going to have it define the thing. And then the second thing I would say is when you observe after that, you need to spend a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with people to understand what they're really about. Because sometimes what you, you see in a startup is that a culture is trying to emerge from the new people that have joined, but they, they're not quite sure how it works yet. They're not really sure what the founder is about. But by you getting in touch with them and really understanding that that's the second step, you have to really understand the people around you. And then the third step is, and, and I would, I'm gonna almost say you have to take like a product manager's view to it. You need to poke the system with experiments and see what the system does back. So for example, mm -hmm. let's say the culture is seems like, you know what, I can't tell whether it's about transparency or not. Like what's going on here? Once you've had time to observe and had time to talk to people, maybe you try like a presentation. You're like, okay, I'm gonna try to do a presentation about this particular product initiative we worked on. And I'm gonna be really transparent about what happens and observe. You know, if people are like, oh my God, that's the best thing, you know, you, I love working that. That was the coolest thing that I ever did. You're on to something. If if the founders are like, yeah, uh, yeah, when's that next thing going to ship? Cool presentation, but, you know, whatever, you know what you're yeah. up against. And then and then I would say hopefully that sets the thing. You need to treat your company a little bit like a product and you need to think about it carefully. But once you've done those things, it really then to 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 establish that culture needs to be through action. You know, so it's your actions. And people say, oh my God, I mean, listen, here's the thing about 50-person company. One person's actions in a 50-person company can completely change the company. It doesn't seem like it, but one person starts doing a certain type of thing, then five people, and they get really into it, and then 10 people, and before you know it, you know, one-fifth of the company mm -hmm. thinks this way. Now, when you've got a thousand people, the chance that one person is going to shift the company is very, very low in terms of the culture to do those things. But when you're at 50, you have an opportunity. So hopefully that answers your question. It's, it's very like product, like, you know, observe, do more research and then poke. The, and, and this is the, the, the experiments. And this is what I'd also say for people thinking about their individual career is that if you have a positive, I, I hate saying if you have a positive attitude, because that seems very like new agey or whatever, but if, if you're taking care of yourself and thinking sustainably and working with what you have, you can usually get, you know, two, three years out of a company and learn a lot. Now, it might not be the perfect place, but you're going to learn something that you can then take maybe to your dream company or to your next thing to do it. So when you're thinking about yourself, if the mission becomes, oh, my God, I got to change this company, you know, you're setting yourself up for a, a certain level of disappointment. But when you say, you know what, I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to try to create the sort of change and model the examples that I want. I'm going to poke the system a little bit. If it pokes back, okay, I know, but I'm going to learn what I can. 
you, you're thinking about yourself and your own career and your own well-being too. Because I know a lot of people who tried for years to change their company's culture and it never changed and then they were burnt out and then they didn't learn mm -hmm. anything because they were always stressed out <laughs> about the culture of the yeah. company. <laughs> and you know, in Russia, we have this saying that you don't join a church with your own Bible. And that's like if you join a company and you have a mission to change the culture or introduce it, it's probably definitely going to lead you to a disappointment because you need to be humble about it. Yeah. What I really also like about your uh, like poking, I think this is a, a very childful and playful approach because when you appear in a place or a system that you don't know, you have never interacted with it before or maybe only just from the outside, you really need to know the rules of the game and you need to explore, you need to experiment, you need to trip yourself and try different things and then you kind of shape it and you have a very nice map of how actually things are working, how decisions are being made, how what you do, how you talk to people, what things get accepted, what things are punished yeah. and so on and so on. You know one thing, here's the other tip that I give people is you can always make your experiment safer. And when people say that, they're like, well, what do you mean you can make it safer? So here's an example. You know, normally when people start, especially in a startup, five days into it, some leader, you know, you're there and you're like, oh, I think I could fix that. And some leader is like, yeah, 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 okay, go off and fix it. Great. Three months later, you've burned political cap. You never really, it was much more complicated. No one really wanted you of to course. fix it. it. It was not a safe experiment, but it's so easy to fall into that trap. You're like, oh my God, the leader said that I should go and fix it. They, they, they trust me. But the leader didn't really understand what you were saying because they, they didn't know what you were saying. It sounded good to them, but they didn't know the details yet. Right? They just encouraged you and that's Yeah, it. they encouraged you and you went off and did it. And so that's an example. You know, some, once someone said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this huge activity for this design sprint. It's going to take a week and I'm going to do these things. And I'm like, well, what's, what's the simplest experiment that you could do to even understand if people are ready for that? And what we boiled it down to is that in a one-on-one -on -one meeting, they were going to say, ask a person about their prior experiences doing design activities. And it turned out <laughs> that no, everyone had said, that's a great idea, but no one had done anything like it in the past. Mm. You know, so, so by asking these little questions and by thinking about where people are coming from, they could make it a much more appropriate activity because that's the thing when as a change agent in a company is that, you know, especially when you're new, people be like, yeah, 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 go. Yeah, it's great. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be there to help you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you got to you got to be really, you know, sort of careful and poke the system a little bit. Um, and, and I always say that, you know, people underestimate the change they can make in the company in the long term and overestimate the change they can make the company in the short term. Absolutely. You know, so it's the same with the life. You overestimate what you can do in one year and you totally underestimate how much you can do in 10 years. And yeah. we always err on that side. And it's amazing yeah. how much we can actually do in 10 years. Yeah, totally. Um, so let's uh, continue with our mental exercise and let's assume I changed the company, I started uh, some cultural change, I, I started humble, I first changed my own way of working, maybe then I found um, a person who also shares the same values and we are now two or maybe three people like you said, like a slowly growth. And then let's talk a little bit about risks. What can go wrong when I start changing the culture or I am adopting a new approach and I'm poking, I try and some things work, some things don't work. So what should I be on a lookout for in those situations? So here's a couple patterns. One, 
everyone, just what we were talking about, everyone's encouraging, everyone seems to love it, but no one understands it yet. And when they do understand it, they're going to kick back immediately. So it's going to be difficult, right? So that's the first one. The second thing is that basically there's, there, I wouldn't call them elephant in the room, but there's some structural things in the company, whether it's the investment in the company or the founders or some core element of the company that's just, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to shift in the way that you're thinking that it's going to shift. Like, so an example would be that, let's say there's a company invest, the investment in the company is a certain way. The investors are expecting a certain return on the investment. And the way to achieve that is through kind of cutting corners in the short term. And, you know, you've got 10 people together. It's like, well, we shouldn't cut corners. We should try mm. to like build a business for the long term because I think this company could be great. And I'm going to be working here in 10 years. Like, I think this is the best thing ever. Now, if the investors are looking for the return, you know, the signal, you know, they, they want a billion dollar company and they want it now. Nothing you do on the, that cultural, you know, nothing you do on the small is going to is going to fight that. So so I'd say that's the second thing. The third thing I think is not thinking about regular habits instead of thinking about pushing the change. So it's kind of invitation over it's you want invitation. You don't want imposition. And so especially if you're new or whatever, a lot of people will be like, oh, OK, yeah, yeah, whatever. But you're not really inviting them to be participants. You've got your group of five or 10 people, the new way, this is great. You know, we're defining this new culture in the direction we're taking. And the other people are like, yeah, I guess, but you've never really invited us. You're not inviting mm -hmm. us as co-designers mm -hmm. to this. And this is the class, you know, I always say to people, you know, I almost said it to you in the beginning where people are, you know, someone will say, oh my God, my company is so resistant to change. Yeah. And I always say, are they resistant to change or are they just resistant to the change that you like? Because it look, turns out your company changes a lot. They just don't change. You're just not invited. <laughs> you, you know, like it changes all the time. It's it's you who doesn't is not happy mm -hmm. with the change. So I'd say that that's the last little pattern is to think about: Are you are you imposing or are you inviting? And inviting means that you have to be selfless in this game. If you go in thinking to yourself, I want the culture to be this way, therefore I'm going to push for this because it's what benefits me, uh, it yeah. could be that that's just not what people want to co-design in that environment. You know, it could be that you're, so there's one thing to want the company to establish a strong culture and almost treat it as an emergent property that you're just willing to nudge a little bit. And it's another thing to say, we have to make the company this way because I want it this way. Yeah. And so I think that's the final mistake. <laughs> yeah, don't turn into a tyrant when you try to introduce a culture. It will not work. And like, I yeah. really, really like what you said about co-creating and co-designing because even if we talk about this example of having a 50 people, you are not alone there. And even if you're talking right. about five people, you're not alone and your values are not going to be the values of other people. And yeah. you need to find a common ground. You need to come up with a set of behaviors and decision-making patterns that will be accepted by everyone. And as you're totally correct saying that you have to be selfless because you're not creating the culture for yourself. Just go and, yeah. and found a company and have your own culture in that way. You're yeah. doing it for the benefit of the entire organization so that everyone inside this team, inside this department is moving faster or not 
going through the same decision process because you decide once on your cultural right. values and you keep them for a year or something like that. So you just free up their mental capacity and and you not you don't do it for yourself i guess that's my final takeaway you you build a culture for other people to be successful and that's why you invite yeah. them to co-create it as well yeah i think that, and and one thing that's important there to think about it and you mentioned this about a company having multiple cultures and things like that is that look we know it, you know i i always um I always think about this thing, which is like drivers, constraints, and floats. So in, in this model, like drivers are things driving that you're, you're aligning on. And constraints are things that constrain you, that maybe hold you back, but you have to do. And floats are areas of flexibility. And so one of the big mistakes, though, is that your organization will only be able to handle so many drivers in terms of the culture, right? And so this idea that like what one big mistake you see is, the founder freaks out and says, oh my God, no one understands the culture anymore. I'm gonna write the one page document that's gonna tell people exactly what the culture is supposed to be like here. And it's like, no, it, it, it kind of doesn't, it doesn't work like that. First of all, the culture got to where it is on your watch. So this is mm -hmm. your problem. <laughs> and then second of all, you know, the, the just think about how many things are sort of, um, you know, I, I mean, there's been a lot of debate of book, but in Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens, you know, he talks about like humans create, you know, laws and things like that are just sort of, you know, these rules that we create to kind of like, you know, mediate our interactions and to do these different things. And so if, if you think about your company, you know, the more things you need to mandate and like processify and drill into people, the more restrictive it's going to be. And so you really have to, like, if you can ever achieve something, if you can ever achieve consistency without the, the downside of um, conformity and process and things like that, you should always take that angle. So the difference would be, like, the, the, the reason why show, don't tell works is that if you come into a company and just by observing people, the culture is consistent, you don't need to like read the manifesto. You just look at how people act. You're getting consistency without process and conformity and without things like that. So, and, and another final thing I would say is diversity is what makes a lot of product teams amazing. Diverse ways of thinking, um, diverse backgrounds, diverse ethnicities, like a whole range of things. And so the number of things in the Bay Area that are like, this is our culture, move fast, break things, whatever, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever. They're excluding a lot of people from those teams. So then they're also losing a lot of diversity. So that's the other thing, too. Again, back to this thing is like, where do you really need to be consistent? And where are you going to benefit from a lot of diversity and perspectives? And the more things you think in your mind you need to be consistent, the more risk you run that you're going to lose that level of diversity and creativity. So I think that it's a balance, right? You can't just, you know, enforce a culture. <laughs> yeah, you definitely can't do that. And also diversity is so important, especially in our age. And right now, everyone is working remotely. You yeah. are in Bay Area. I am in, in Central uh, Europe and we are comfortably having a conversation. And there is no point in not having a diverse team on your on your company right. to build products and if you have a diverse team you're going to be building a diverse product as well and that means you will have a bigger reach to your customers and you will be able to serve different segments and it's like win situations on every single front and right. yeah why why should you not do that yeah. and another thing that uh, resonated with me from what you said about the culture that it's 
making you more stable, that you have mm -hmm. those ever-changing landscape in product or in tech in general, in startup world, that everything is new, everything is changing, you have new ideas and it's all over the place. And culture is actually what grounds you down a little bit, that makes you uniform to a level that helps you. But yeah. if you do it too much, you become stagnant and you become too firm and, and you, you lose the flexibility here. Yeah, it's, I always remember like a leader sort of saying, when you're dealing with a remote team and diverse groups from all over the world, it really does help to kind of document what your operating principles are. But a perfect example of that is the team documenting the operating principles so prescriptively that they're taking the life out of the room. You know, so think about the difference between saying that like, you know, you know, you will respect your teammates by you show up at meetings on time or whatever, you know, you do all those things and you think like, okay, isn't this just about respecting, this is about respecting each other's time, right? And, and even maybe more than that, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, you know, respecting the contributions of the people around you. And so the classic thing is that someone will get really angry because no one seems to come to the meetings and the remote things and say, this culture, like we need to, this is about responsibility and respect and you've got to show up to your meetings, you've got to do that. And they, they miss the why, you know, they miss the thing. So a lot of times I think people are right to push back on I mean, it's, it's like Agile Manifesto, you know, it's like we favor these conversations and the individual connections with people over documentation and that type of stuff. But it, that gets a little harder with remote because it does help to document. But words really, really matter as you're putting those things together. It's a huge difference between like, look, we respect the time and energy of the people around us and blah, 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 blah about everything you're doing, you know. So I don't know if that's, that example helps. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fine balance always between yeah. flexibility and uh, rules and processes. I guess that's why you have a democratic setup that you have. You have people who are acting right. and uh, pushing for liberal stuff that open up everything. And then you have conservative people who say, wait, we need structure, we need organizations. And it's always a compromise. And yeah. you, in a conversation, find what works best for you and your company, what, what actually brings you and makes you successful why you do that what is your path because as you said you at the very beginning that there are so many similar illnesses that we all have as an organizations but to be really successful it's a very a lot of different paths that you can take and you just need to find yours with the company and with your people what makes you yeah. in your particular setting in your industry in your area to be successful as, a, as an organization yeah and i'd say that one thing is and you know not to get too like world affairs or whatever, but just think about COVID for a second, right? Some countries basically had a true north in their approach, but then when they got new data, they changed their approach, but they kept their true north, right? Like they were consistent, they were internally consistent. Now other countries like the United States was very, very divided as a country, right? And so you think about you know, I think that, for example, what will happen when we learn later about what happened with COVID is that the countries that quote unquote did better, it's actually less about the tactic that they picked and more about their internal consistency and communication and keeping the public aligned on a true north. 
about what they're doing, why they're doing it, and connected those things. And also those cultures were less divided for whatever reason mm -hmm. to do that. And in the countries where things were much more divided, you know, or there was kind of a dogma, you know, that they were just like, oh, we've got to prove ourselves to the world that this is the right thing to do. You'll find they did this well. But I think it's the same thing with companies. You know, the, the, the company cultures that are inflexible for everything or will fail, but the, it's about finding that true north for your approach and getting the communication and being internally consistent. So I think that's one lesson that I've had over the last year or more. Yeah, and to be honest, that is the perfect closing thought that we can have for the for the episode because we are uh, quite uh, running out of time for this. And I think having this true north and being consistent is what will take your company and your product to really the next level if you come up with it together with your team. That's uh, a very nice uh, exercise you can do to get there. Cool. Yeah, this has been so much fun. I, I really had a great time chatting. It's my morning. The coffee just kicked in, but this was very invigorating. So, <laughs> Thank you so much, John, for coming. It was an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Uh, last question that I always ask, because some pe sometimes people want to follow up on some of the topics. Uh, where can they get in touch with you online if they want to ask you a question or something? Um, probably Twitter is the easiest way. So John Cuttlefish, C-U-T-L-E fish. Yeah, that's probably the best way, but not everyone uses Twitter. So you could do LinkedIn. I try to, I try mm -hmm. to respond to those, all those particular messages. So between LinkedIn and, and Twitter, it should be a good, good technique. Perfect. Then I'm going to link to both of them in the show description. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, then thank you so much, John, for coming. Have a great day. You too. Top Tier is produced by me, Daniel Pavlichkov. Music for the show composed by Emmett Fenn. If you like the episode, hit subscribe and leave us a review. It will help me tremendously. Thank you.